big factor was that my mother died when I was seven, and I never had that protective mother around me. And funny enough, just the other day I was with some friends and they were discussing hemophiliacs, and the, the remark came from somebody else exactly what you said. Oh, I knew a hemophiliac whose mother overprotected him, she was always you know, doing this and that for him, even when he was an adult. And I never had that. I had a stepmother who had eight children of her own. So I was in this family where we just had to get on with ourselves. Uh, on a, I had to get on, on with it myself and get to hospital. I used to phone Kuriliski Hospital and say, I'm coming in, please order the factor that I need, the blood factor. Um, so at the time it sounded tragic, but actually, but for that, I would have been a mollycoddle, probably a very different person. I just had to go out there. And with my stepbrothers, I just did what they did, ride bicycles and crazy things that a normal human being probably wouldn't have done. So in retrospect, being in that big family um, of, of robust stepbrothers in particular. Um, and yeah. the strangest thing is I was reading your book, you know, you kind of know that someone's read, writing a memoir or, you know, a biographical story in past tense, so they must have made it through. I had so much anxiety when you were out with this bed in the middle of a forest with your clotting factor miles away. <laughs> I must say that uh, it, it, it surprised me how brave you are in that sense. I don't think that, that fearlessness has left you, right? Well, maybe it's stupidity. <laughs> I was just stupid. I, I, you know, I left the, we couldn't take much. I left the, my blood clotting factor with the Ukrainian uh, metal detector man at his house which was like five hours drive away. But you just reminded me of another, of another incident. I went to Europe um, first time when I was 21, backpacking like students do, cheap flights, also in the book. And um, uh, I took, I remember eight boxes of, in those days, the clotting factor that I took was much bigger. Today it's concentrated and it was in eight boxes and I had those squashed into my rucksack and eight's not very much and I went for 13 weeks. So, much later, much later at a hemophilia society meeting, a mother of a hemophiliac child, who was also now finished with trick was going to go overseas, her mother was consulting me, how did you manage? And I told her the story that I only took eight of them. And she, what? She kind of couldn't believe it. But Again, it was just partly stupidity, but I somehow made it. <laughs> but when I got to Poland, it was my first trip to Poland. I had run out and I had an, an internal bleed in my elbow. And I made a plan. Uh, my, my mother's sister, she phoned the blood bank and got me some of the factor. Uh, yeah. She incidentally lived in a flat and she went put it up. She went to the, to the little balcony. It was a communist sort of era then. She said, you see those, that washing line? That's Lech Valencia's washing hanging there. <laughs> <laughs> and then, staying with the theme of blood, then you're consuming all these blood products your whole life, and eventually there's this weird blood disease that comes about, you know, it goes through various scientific names, and then it becomes a gay-related illness, and, you know, eventually what we've come to know is HIV. Um, and you kind of read about it, and then you have this kind of foreboding feeling that something's off. Can you take us through kind of that time um, and then eventually to your diagnosis? Yeah, so this was 1985 and the whole, the world of AIDS and that was just starting. And it was a mysterious illness that my girlfriend at the time, Liz, 
who is connected indirectly to Vivian sitting here. Um, she said, listen, she was reading the press about the strange new disease which was affecting the three H's, the hemophiliacs, the homosexuals, and the Haitians. And the news was coming through from America about this. And she said, why don't you have a test? I've read there's a test. And so it was a big deal then. I had to go to Tigerberg Hospital to some laboratory to get a test, which I described in the book. And uh, I just said, oh, I'll just go and get myself tested uh, just to make sure, you know, just to appease her and just to clarify that I'm fine. But when I went, I started getting uneasy. And well, it's described in the book. Um, I, I was diagnosed HIV positive. Yeah, absolutely. And it was—I mean, it's, it was such a huge thing that they, there was some, in those days. There was such a huge stigma around it. You know, I was having a conversation with a friend, um, and I can remember being at school, and you know, kind of HIV and HIV prevention was such a huge message um, from really, really like an early age. Um, and we're talking about how these days, you know, there's pre-exposure, prophylaxis, and young people just don't, you know, they, they aren't worried about it. But I realized that then, I mean, you didn't know whether you had weeks, months, years kind, kind yeah. of to live. Yeah. Um, and then you also talk about it being particularly lonely. I mean, you, you mentioned that it was the disease of the homosexuals at that particular time. And there's one line that really stuck down, I wrote it down. It was difficult being HIV positive and not gay. And I was like, what? <laughs> but I can imagine that there was this kind of community that kind of rallied around yeah. gay people at that particular time. And I mean, you really had no one to talk to. You were in a conservative Polish community as well. Yeah. And you didn't tell people for many years. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what was that experience like? Can you take us through those? Well, what kind of loneliness? one word was lonely. And I used the word an outsider when I couldn't play cricket when I was six years old. And here I was, HIV positive, associated with gay people, only gay people you know, in those days got HIV. So I wasn't part of that club either. In fact, you know, for many reasons, I was kind of a bit wary of um, being associated with gay people. And um, this actually was an issue worldwide with hemophiliacs. My father at the time said, have you read in Time magazine, they burned down uh, two hemophiliac brothers' house because they were HIV positive. It was such a stigma um, to be HIV positive. Um, and, and on top of it, it's, this was a stigma in those days. It was. Uh, the older ones will remember that you know, being gay was just not talked about at all, never mind being HIV positive. It was all whispered about. So it was a very difficult time in my, of my life. Yeah. One of the interesting stories you kind of tell, and I think it's perhaps because I went to UCT and you were at UCT at this particular time, but you kind of spent some time on ethics committees and kind of were around when the university was dealing with the fact that a lot of students, you know, started getting infected and you tell the story of a young student who kind of came to talk to you yeah. after you did a lecture where you, you know, you kind of had, had to share that and she shared that she was positive. Um, and there was still a lot of secrecy and stigma then. Um, what were your kind of feelings when you were seeing lots of young people dealing with that, or lots of young people coming out bravely with those um, HIV positive t-shirts? Yeah. Like, well, it was before HIV positive t-shirts. It was, it was this young, I started my first public talk about, it was about eight years later after I was diagnosed, I gathered up courage to talk about it publicly. And a young black student who 
happened to be in the law faculty where I was teaching, came to me and I thought she was coming to talk about some law subjects. She said, I'm HIV positive. And I was just devastated. I was drawn to her because I was living in this own isolated world of my own. And the difficulty was, because of confidentiality, um, I couldn't go tell the professors then at the time or colleagues, you know, you must take special care of this woman, she's HIV positive because of confidentiality. And um, it was very, very difficult. But gradually over time, things got better and I was eventually, eventually uh, more public about it. Melanie Gosling, a journalist who I talked about a lot with environmental issues, said, I want, to, I want your story when you're ready. So I gave the story, of, and it was in the Cape Times, about living with HIV. So it was a very, very difficult time, yeah, for me. And what's interesting in the book is you write a lot about mental health, and that young lady you referenced was eventually academically excluded, and yeah. you asked a colleague who I suspect I might know, and said, she's a little mad, and it was quite funny. I'm, you're quite open about kind of the mental health things, but I mean, the mental health conversations we have today um, didn't exist 20 years exactly. ago, 30 years ago. So you kind of had to do a lot of suffering in silence, like therapy exactly. wasn't available. Couldn't talk about and then, you've, on the one side, you're dealing with these health things, um, and there have been so many advances since, and I, you know, I kind of, I, we spoke about your trauma earlier on, the kind of genetically of kind of leaving your home and, you know, your parents leaving your home. And then there have been so many advancements with hemophilia and the kind of management of that, HIV and the manager of that, that, and you saw lots of friends die along the way. Do you ever get like a sense of survivor's guilt? That was the one thing I kind of, as I saw. There's that scene when you go and you, uh, a dear friend of yours has died in the UK um, and you end up taking his plotting factor and it's like you're all just like one more week, one more week, you know, kind of living there today. Is there yeah. some sense of survivor's guilt here for all? It's not so much survivor's guilt which I feel, but it's like, why me? Why am I an exception? All of these guys around me have died, HIV positive hemophiliacs. And there's a handful that survived. I've often wondered, I've asked doctors, what is different about me? There's a, there's a handful of HIV positive hemophiliacs in, in Australia, which they call long-term survivors. So why am I a long-term survivor? I just don't know. There's not so much guilt, but it's just <laughs> gratitude. Um, and, yeah. Great. Yeah. And then, with all of that out of the way, there's the adventurous side of you, there's the silver. Now, if my father came to me and said to me, drew a crazy map and said to me, the family soul is buried there, I probably wouldn't believe him and I would probably get him some help. But you kind of grabbed that document, leaped into it and built this adventure and had this little obsession. Can you, do you remember uh, the day he came to you when you realized that this is a real thing that you well, wanted to pursue? It wasn't quite like that. He, he didn't come to me, I went to him. And because at the dining room table, he would, not often, but because now he had a different new life. But he would sometimes refer to life back in Poland in the days he was a young, just started farming, my grandfather's farm. And he would sometimes refer to him. I can't remember the moment, but it would have been in childhood that he said, we buried the family silver. Uh, and so when World War II broke out, and I would have asked him about that. And as he got older, um, and when I started working at UCT in 1985, he was really late 70s or 80, I can't remember. But I went to him and I said, listen, you must, you must write me a map, please. 
And he then presented me with a map and a set of instructions, where to go, how to get, get there to the spot. Um, so it was the other way around. I had this, maybe your next question is going to be, what, why, I'm not sure. Why, where did this come from? <laughs> it wasn't going to be my next question, but where did it come from? <laughs> it's a difficult question. I just had this desire, but actually the last sentence of this one and a half page, type pages of instructions which accompanied the map said, you must find our silver and my hunting guns. And when I read that, uh, you must find our silver, and remember the our, the family silver, and my hunting guns. And when I read that, I let out a, a wail. Oh! No, he was deceased when I read that. And I just, I, I still don't know why, but I just thought I must try, at least try, to fulfill my father's. And to reclaim, I suppose it's about reclaiming my ancestry, um, having left it so tumultuously. You know. One thing I must commend you for, I think it's very difficult to kind of, as a, when you're writing, to kind of pace adventure correctly, but it really is, you know, like quite pacey and it's an enjoyable, yeah. a really enjoyable part of the book. Um, and the one thing that it kind of tested in me was the idea of trust. And you're incredibly, I think it relates to your fairness, you're incredibly trusting of so many people along the way. and. They hear your story and they're strangely, incredibly trusting of you. <laughs> um, I just, I, I just find that quite funny. But yeah, can you comment on that a little bit? Well, can you give me an example? I think, uh, yeah, I think you just kind of you meet an author who's willing to create oh. a road trip and drive, oh, you know, yeah. off the beaten track to a field where there are no ruins yeah. left, you know, yeah, to yeah. help you. <laughs> and they don't write it off as the writings of a madman. I think it's a, it's, a, it's quite fascinating. <laughs> So yeah, I met this author by coincidence, maybe it wasn't a coincidence, and she was half Ukrainian, half Polish. So immediately when I met her and I heard that she had a flat in Lviv, which is now in Ukraine, um, it wasn't trust, I just thought maybe she can be my connection, you know, in Lviv where she's got a base, because yeah, it's a foreign country, um, <clears throat> And how would I ever, where would I start and meeting this woman and knowing that she had a flat in Lviv. She's called Alina in the book, but her name's not that. Uh, she asked not to be mentioned. Um, it gave me a kind of base in, in, in the country of Ukraine to pursue the thing. And, and she found the, the metal detector man. Speaking of the metal detector man, so you end up recruiting a whole lot of I think there were usual shady characters along the way to kind of help you. And you get to the end of it, you discover the silver. Sorry for spoiling it for those of you who haven't read it that far. Um, you discover the silver, and then it's time to kind of split the spoils. And you were way more generous than I would have been. Like you, you grappled with those emotions. But when you were talking about the why, why you needed to kind of go there and do this, um, how easy or difficult was it to kind of let that go? Was, was the accomplishment simply finding it or did you need the pieces, you know, in your possession? Well, there was, the, firstly, I, I never imagined it's going to be so much silver. I just told friends, oh, this is probably the mantelpiece. And I used the words, I'll be happy with just a teaspoon. But 
human nature being, when I saw the catch of 25 and the beautiful pieces, my sort of attitude changed. <laughs> but, but I must go one step back because Alina, my friend, who introduced me to the metal detector man, we discussed what I should pay him before, before the search. And I sort of debated in my head, maybe I should give him half the silver, whatever was found, and maybe just a cash amount for, if we found nothing, which I didn't think we'd ever find anything. I thought it was a, it was a needle in a haystack situation. So I thought, I'll maybe just give him some cash if we don't find anything. And I remember this was an important moment as we got there, he was in separate car, and as we got to my grandfather's or estate, family estate, I was getting out of the car and I said to Alina, should I talk to him about now? She said, no, now's not the right time about payment. And I never did. And that was both fortuitous because if I offered him half, it would have been disastrous. But also, it was a mistake because then a certain amount of ugliness developed. Uh, which you'll read about in the book. <laughs> Absolutely. The one thing that stunned me about that section as well is that as a lawyer, you were kind of quite free in, in implicating yourself in stealing pre-World War II artifacts, which is a great segue into my next few questions, kind of about your career. Um, and I remember um, my father used to work quite near Yan, and I think his office was probably a few doors down, I used to go and see this Institute of Marine and Environmental Law and I was probably like 10 and I had no idea what that could possibly mean so I thought it had something to do with pirates which wasn't too far <laughs> off, right? Um, but to, uh, to, to, to that point, you, you know, you've kind of been part of this kind of new you know, sphere of law in South Africa and you kind of, you know, kind of have expanded it, written a groundbreaking textbook and have been instrumental in getting it, you know, kind of legislated in Namibia and South Africa. What kind of drew you to it um, as an area of interest? So again, um, again, that's a, it's a good question, but I haven't got a clear answer. It was something inherent in me. I did the normal law degree because I had a government or started in bursary, I had to work in inland revenue because of it. And I didn't like it. I then did my articles in Johannesburg with a law firm and I just found the whole legal very stressful and kind of thought it wasn't for me. So, and, but eventually I did a master's in environmental studies after that and not with any idea of environmental law, but, but I suddenly got it into my head that I must do that environmental law is something that I want to do. Um, it just again came in from somewhere inside me, maybe again <coughs> genetic. My father was working the land, he trained in France in agriculture, my mother was a horticulturalist. I don't know, I grew up on a farm and to do with the land and caring for the land, uh, maybe it was that, I don't know, but somewhere just environmental law wasn't a subject when I was uh, at university. It only became popular when, by fortuitous timing, I, when I got this job in marine law. Yeah. 
That's fascinating how much that kind of area has grown. You know, you talk about fracking, but I mean, we're obviously all in the middle of an energy crisis right now. Yeah. You know, we kind of use, talk about sustainability and ESG and all of those elements like, you know, they're commonplace today, but they, no one spoke about those things, you know, kind of 40 yeah. years ago. But as I was thinking about that, I was thinking that, like, in terms of future and mortality, you're, you're born with a life-threatening condition that you manage, then you've got HIV, and that comes at a time when their life expectancy is really, really low. Um, and I think it's mortality something we've all struggled with having you know, gone through the COVID pandemic um, and thinking about wars happening incidentally in a similar part of the world. And you know, um, how do you think about the future and mortality? You kind of seem to blow with the wind fearlessly. Um, how do you think about it? Um, quite honestly, I'm, I'm not optimistic. About the planet, I think the planet is busy shaking us off like a dog, irritated by these. And a colleague who says we're being evicted. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't think you know, like the current COP conference in Egypt. I, I'm a greater size. It's just a lot of talking. This plan, this problem is too big for us, and we don't have the commitment to to really deal with it. And I'm sorry to say that, but. I'm a pessimist in this regard. Yeah. Which is unusual because you're quite optimistic about a lot of other things. Yeah, yeah. And I started life mm. much more optimistically when I got involved with environmental law. Mm. Yeah. And on that note, I want to welcome uh, questions from the audience. I think there's a lot to cover, so I don't want to hog the conversation. Are there any questions? I've got one right at the back. It'll take a few hundred years, though, <laughs> for us to get shaken yes. yeah. Hello, um, I'm Jenny Still. I read your book, uh, Professor, and I just wanted to say it is the most wonderful celebration of life, and it's very, very empathetically written. And the photographs are fantastic, and I would recommend that everybody reads it. And if you've lived in Cape Town, and you know the people that you've mentioned, and things like that, Really is a wonderful book. And also, and also I'd like to say to, to Lalage and Carol, thank you very much for putting together Donald's funeral and the eats and the get together. It was really meaningful and um, I think we'll have that bagpiper again. <laughs> thank you, Jean. I'm going to now that I've heard you speak, and I just wanted to know if you, you know, your your parents came from Poland. They're obviously immigrants. Um, obviously, they fled from something that was very frightening to to have got here. What do you think South Africa gave your family? Um, perhaps it might be different what you've received from South Africa and what they received from South Africa. But what what have you been given by this country? Well, I have been given a fortune by this country. Firstly, under apartheid, I was privileged. I had an education where those kids that I played with, they would have disappeared, they would have been jobless probably. So, I mean, being a white South African under apartheid gave me entry into schools, you know, into good schools. And, and the other 
huge thing that I got from South Africa, being in South Africa was the world-class medical care. And although our country has um, got problems in many sectors, your sector, transport, that you're writing about, the medical care, I've been privileged to have world-class treatment since day one. Um, Question back there is. Hello, Professor. Um, my name is Helga Patik. Um, I am a virgin in England, 1950. Came here when I was two with my parents. My father, I'm just connecting with you about Afrikaans. My father became a professor of Afrikaans in the Netherlands at Rhodes University in Grahamstown. And so I grew up in an Afrikaans school, an Afrikaans environment, uh, Calvinist uh, school. My father insisted we went to the Afrikaans school in Grahamstown. It was very narrow-minded and, you know, you can imagine. Um, what I actually want to say to you, being from Polish descent, is that my older sister, who followed in my father's footsteps, was an Afrikaans lecturer at Vendor University. Her husband was a professor of Afrikaans there. Poet. And the two of them went to Poland. Um, this must be going back about 10 years now, to the University of Poznan in Poland. And they lectured in Afrikaans. It's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. How on earth did Afrikaans get to Poznan? Maybe you can explain, I don't know. And just one more thing I'm a medical doctor, retired now for 10 years, worked at Kuriski Hospital. Thank you for the accolades. Um, um, grew up when AIDS was a problem in this country. We had a president, Claudine Becky, who was a denialist, and we couldn't give treatment to our patients who were HIV positive. And the last 10 years of my career, we were able to actually provide, provide ARDs. What a wonderful thing that was to be able to do to people who were HIV Say many, many words. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for your <laughs> thanks for your comments and questions. Um, funny enough, I know about that Poznan Afrikaans faculty, and at one stage, you know, like we all go through white South Africans who want to emigrate, and I thought maybe I'll get a job there. <laughs> so I checked them down. Um, but how it came about, to answer your question, what I learned there was that the Afrikaans community, I, I don't know if it was Stellenbosch University, but you'll probably know better, was so keen to maintain Afrikaans because it's been threatened, that anybody that would listen and, and want to hear, they would start teaching Afrikaans. So it's just a way, that's what I heard at the time, is a way of, of, of keeping Afrikaans as a living language. Um, as regards Kruderskjaer, so we've obviously got some common uh, people we know, and I'm fortunate, I've got a big family as you'll read, and my stepbrother was married to someone called Danielle, who then, they got divorced, but she was um, then married to Abdullah, uh, he, he was involved with the roll-up, uh, his name is just my mind, anyway, there's all these connections that have come up. Amazing connections with this memoir as well. People have come out of woodwork and, and, and it's been a great pleasure, a great sense of satisfaction for me to, to 
get all of this kind of feedback. You can just give it 